Hello, and welcome to Health Views with Deb Friesen, MD, a podcast about health and wellness within today's healthcare landscape. I'm your host, Dr. Deb Friesen with Kaiser Permanente, and I've been working in healthcare for over 20 years. During that time, I've learned that the most powerful tool for healing is the power of listening and the value of asking the right questions. Come join me as we'll together explore timely topics that impact people, businesses, and communities. Now let's check out today's view. Did you know that the third Saturday in May is Armed Forces Day? To commemorate Armed Forces Day and Mental Health Awareness Month, we're releasing this excellent interview with Dr. Joseph Carvalho Jr., who's a decorated military physician and current president and CEO of the Henry M. Jackson Foundation for the Advancement of Military Medicine. During this interview, you'll hear about Dr. Carvalho's impressive military and medical background, and you'll hear about his compassion and his calling to help and heal people serving in the military. He's an amazing person, and I'm excited to share this conversation with you. First of all, I want to just thank you for joining me. I must say, in researching this podcast, I kind of feel glad that I met you and have talked with you face to face before going to Wikipedia and seeing all of your accomplishments and everything that you've been awarded based on your contributions. And it certainly is impressive. So I'd like to get a sense of really Joe Carvalho and the child who has now become you. So the origin story. You just mentioned that you were born and raised in Hawaii. Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood home, your, your family of origin? So my mom is Chinese and my dad is Puerto Rican. Those who may know is a Hawaii's melting pot of different cultures and people. And uh, so they were trendsetters to marry each other back when they did and uh, had five children. My dad was a policeman and my mom was what we called at the time a waitress and then a hotel maid and things uh, like that ended up in a hotel cantina. So very blue-collar family, not anything ritzy, even though it sounds ritzy like it's in Hawaii. And why were your parents able to buck the trend or to be trendsetters? You know, it was even, I think you're pointing out that it was maybe even more unusual at that time. So who were they as people that they were able to kind of independently come together, see each other's strengths, and build a family in, in Hawaii? I'm not sure how to answer that. Even if it could happen anywhere, it would be Hawaii because it was a melting pot. There wasn't a little China or a little Italy type of experience. So you got to see everyone and got past what was your heritage going forward. But my father is very dark gentleman and my mom is as white as can be lady. So that was unusual. As it turns out, in Hawaii, my next door neighbor's parents were Chinese and Puerto Rican. But those are the only two I ever ever met in in my whole life. That's what I mean by trendsetters in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. And did you have siblings growing up? Yeah, so I'm the middle of five, first uh, son. My father was kind of a old thinker in that the girls, there's a purpose for the girls and a purpose for the boys kinds of thing. And they sent us to Catholic school. And the focus was on getting a good education. And and, and that's probably the best gift that they gave to uh, us five children. And I can see even through other interviews that you've done, or when you talk about that, that it really was a gift and at times even a sacrifice they made on behalf of all of the children. As I think about the work and how you've evolved and the work that you do now, 
I wonder if looking back, you can see that you had the gift or ability of bringing kind of disparate things together from the beginning, or was that a skill that developed over time? I think my mom taught me compassion. And then the other thing I realized is my mom, even though I I told you she was a waitress in a service uh, uh, sector and all, and she would come home and show us the coins of tips that she made. And over time, I realized that every waitstaff, every housekeeper, every person who provides service is somebody's mom or dad. So I never lost that sense that we're all on one team. It's not, even though the military is very hierarchical, it is meritocracy. We can all contribute. We can all be part of the team. That I never lost. And I, I love my mom for giving me that characteristic. I love that. And I can see how it's carried through as a thread of your work. So let's carry on. You have a great education in Catholic schools. When is it that you decided either to be in the Army as a career or as a physician as a career or maybe both together? It was in the middle of high school. We were Catholic high school. And back then, corporal punishment you know, wasn't unusual. But I was getting a stern talking to by one of the brothers. And after all of that, he said, did you know that you could be anything you want to be in this world? And if my parents had asked me that before, I never heard it. They may have asked me that a million times. But at that point, I was ready to hear that. I was a junior in high school. I went home, told my mom that my brother had asked me that. And then I thought, what I want to do? And I always thought I'd like to help people. And that's as close as I got to, well, why don't I become a doctor and a physician? And I didn't know anything else other than doctors help people. I tell folks, I didn't know what erythromycin was. I didn't know what that thing was that was hanging in the back of your throat was called. I just wanted to help people. And that's where I started on the journey that, oh, I need to work hard to become a physician. I love it. And how did that cross over to having a career in the Army? You remember I started by saying my my dad had this idea for his daughters. and, And then so I lucked out in that he allowed me to go away to college. And so I worked all summer, saved every penny, went to Gonzaga University in Spokane, Washington. And I realized within a week that I didn't have enough money. My folks didn't have enough money. And so I joined ROTC as a way to pay for college. And that really was a start to my Army career. And it sounds like that that was meaningful to you, partly in that you were contributing back to your family a little bit, that you were removing a burden of the cost of education after they had already sacrificed a lot for you and set you on that path. Tell me more about this person in your life who said, did you know you could be anything you wanted to be? Were there any other, were you especially connected to him? How did he know that you were ripe for that question? This may be too much detail, but he called me in because someone accused me of stealing things out of the locker room when people were doing PE, (laughs) pilfering the lockers when people were changing or something like that. And so he was the taskmaster brother and and no, you didn't want to cross that one brother. So I had never been scolded by him before. And when he did that and he said, this is what you've been accused of. I became incredulous, and I never had that experience like that before. And I'm not sure if that would led to him thinking, I better settle this guy down <laughs> or whatever. But I didn't really talk to him before, but that tells me he must have known who I was, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, I would, th- I would say so. And probably working with the community that he did, he also knew when people were ready to hear something about the next step of their journey. 
So you decided on medical school. We have in common that we both are internal medicine physicians. What made you decide on that as a specialty? Deb, you know, when you're in the military, you, and I was never a civilian physician, so Ah. please excuse me if I don't have it exactly right. So I went to the military medical school even, and I just knew that everything I was going to do is going to be in the military. And when you're in the military, you don't have to do your training right away. So we have to do our internship. But people, I think, have forgotten that once you have your internship, you can start practicing, right? You can hang your shingle. <laughs> you can start seeing. But you're not going to get very far with that alone because there's specialists all around you who have more training and then that's going to be your comparator. So what I wanted to do was be in the field with the military guys. And that was my secret sauce on, on why I was successful in the military. But you couldn't just do that. You had to come back and do the training that you and I did. And when it came to that point, I wanted to be the expert in something. And I knew I didn't want to do surgery. (laughs) I didn't want to be a pediatrician. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I liked solving puzzles. And so the rigor of internal medicine didn't scare me. It, in fact, excited me. Something that I wanted to be very good at. Yeah, I always tell people who I know are kind of like ruminators. I'm like, oh, you would have made a good internist. Because if if we were surgeons, we'd be like, huh, wonder where that bleeding has come from. Let's look it up. And then the patient dies in the meantime. So you did a lot of different things. So internal medicine, nuclear medicine, cardiology, and you kind of, you, you wandered around in your career, it seems like a little bit. What was the common thread in that wandering? Number one is that I was not a physician who happened to be in the Army. I was an Army officer who happened to be a physician. So everything I did, I was thinking, what will I do for 20 years in the Army? So I was never caught just shuffling along. There was always a long-term plan. And it didn't matter to me that it was going to take me a long time to get where I wanted to be clinically because it allowed me to do things operationally. And that, for your listeners, what I mean by that is in the field with the infantry as their medical officer. And you can only do so much at each grade. Every time you get promoted, you can no longer be at the lower type of units where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. And in my operational experience, I spent time with a special forces battalion as their battalion surgeon. And at that point, I became qualified as a flight surgeon. I became qualified as a dive medical officer. I went to scuba school. (laughs) I went to special forces school. All those things have nothing to do with medicine per se. Then I did the clinical. Then I went back and I was with the Joint Special Operations Command. And I did a stint with the Ranger Regiment. And there I went to Ranger school and did some things with them. Again, a lot of field things that are comparable to what the infantry does, but I was a medical guy. And so because I went back and forth, I clinically, I kind of always wanted to be a cardiologist, but it took me to the age of 43 to get there because of all these sidesteps, so to speak. And as I look at your career and what you've done and knowing you as a person, it seems to me that you weren't driven by ambition. And and by that, I mean kind of the negative side where you wanted to be somebody. But it was more, as it looks like to me, that it was curiosity and learning and knowledge that were really what you were in pursuit of. Is that accurate? Well, thank you for saying that. I've had friends tell me, you know, I couldn't hold a job. (laughs) And I did wonder at times, it's like, boy, did I chase something? And then when I got it, it's like, okay, let me go chase something else. It's like, I did wonder why I couldn't just hold steady at one thing. But I look back and I said, 
boy, I'm actually happy that I didn't go from high school, college, med school, internship, residency, fellowship, clinic every day for the rest of my life. That I got to jump out of planes, you know, in my 50s, a scudo. I did so many different things. Yeah. And it kind of makes me think of that line that we have to live life forward, but we can only understand it backwards. Or it's the underside of the weaving where you can see all the pieces finally coming together. So speaking of the wandering path that you've had and where it's led you, that is currently at the Henry Jackson Foundation. So I'd like to hear about how you landed there, and then we'll separately get into HJF. Sure. So as in my final years in the military as a general officer, I got to command at one level a number of hospitals and then medical regions. And then I commanded the Army's Medical Research and Development Command with international sites, $1.3 billion worth of research in the work that goes in the basic research and advanced development. And then I was a deputy surgeon general. And then I was the joint staff surgeon working for the chairman. Upon retirement, I was in such love with the military that I did not think about what I was going to do after the military. As luck would have it, at the time during my transition, I found out that the CEO of HJF or Henry Jackson Foundation was retiring and they were looking for a new CEO. And I felt like I was groomed for this position because of all those things that I had done. And with that research command, a lot of the research work was done with HGF. So I would simply be flipping to the other side and helping it. So I applied, was very fortunate to get selected. And it feels like I'm just continuing, although I'm sad to no longer wear the uniform. I feel like I'm still an arm's length away from those still serving, still helping in aspects of military medicine for the benefit of the warfighters. I love it. So the Henry Jackson Foundation is for the advancement of military medicine. So what does that mean? And let's maybe just go backwards. Why was it formed? What is its charter or purpose? Who participates? Who comes together? Tell us about that. So US UHS, Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences, was chartered in 1972. And I happened to be in the fourth class that graduated in 1983. It didn't take long for Congress to realize that this military medical school, similar to a West Point or Annapolis, but for physicians, needed world-class research as part of its infrastructure to teach medical students at the highest level. And you and I know that to get the top educators, PhDs needed to do the top-level research. What's different with the military is their research monies given by Congress are constrained research, development, testing, and evaluation. RDT&E money must be used within two years. You cannot do world-class research in a two-year window, especially if you get a late start on it or, or what have you. So they needed the implementing arm within the school to be outside of the military. In other words, we couldn't be Department of Defense civilians working within there. We had to be an outside entity so that the monies that Congress would give the military could then be expended with HDF to then come back and do the five-year prospective double-blind placebo-controlled studies, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why it was created, expressly to help USU in its mission to advance military medicine. The vision is for that to happen for the benefit of the military and civilian health. The way I see it, that means it is wide open if you can tie research to help a soldier, sailor, airman, marine 
when you think about it, is an adult in an adverse or austere, under austere conditions to be more capable, resilient, agile, survivable. It's not rocket science, not a couple of chess moves away to think, boy, this is really global health because you can place it on the civilian that's just down the street or under similar conditions. So it's very, very exciting in that regard. That's the charter that has driven HGF since 1983. And so we're unique as a nonprofit in that regard. We are named and called out in federal statute for the purpose that I just described, but we are a civilian nonprofit. So we get to straddle two worlds for the benefit of helping DOD medicine navigate. And where we are now is, is where can we find public-private partnerships, leveraging our stance in both worlds to best get ideas through the research chain, through the, you know, the valley of death and advanced development and prototyping and all of that, so that into the hands of the warfighter. And that's kind of our drive going forward. So let's talk maybe about some of those partnerships and what they might look like against the backdrop of some examples. So, of course, we are still dealing with COVID-19. Has there been work at HJF around the pandemic? Sure. So what's interesting is that the military has been studying aspects of infectious diseases for decades, and they have been studying pathogens of high consequence for decades. And it's very hard to come up with a vaccine. You're a lot younger than I am, but when I started, Bless you. when there was a virus, <laughs> we weren't thinking about treatments, right? We were right. thinking of other things. So the advances that we're making, a lot of it is on the backs of what the DOD has been working on. And when you think about it, and why is that? The big pharmas really weren't interested in infectious diseases that were endemic in non-U.S. areas. And why were we? The military is because a soldier on a moment's notice has to go anywhere in the world that the president says to go to. And so now when you get parachuted in into an area with an endemic disease, your best protection is prevention. If you're laid up sick, that's the same as being laid up shot. So there's a big, big focus. And when you think about people who are not capable in their deployment mission, 80% of what causes them to fall back is diseases and non-battle injuries, not gunshots and artillery and things like that. So it's, the military is keen to think about things like that. So obviously COVID changed all of that. And the president did the right thing, the whole of government, whole of America approach to this. And they really have leveraged the DOD on, on many levels. And it was research, but it was also logistics. It was also our, the contracting capabilities that the D Department of Defense had that helped move this along, whether Moderna, Pfizer, Biotech, all of these different entities that went forward. But there is one, and there are many versions of medical countermeasure, as we see, let's use that generic military type term, but a treatment for COVID. There's one that's being researched in partnership with the military and co-inventors within HTF, a coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 treatment that might be pan-SARS-CoV-2. So it might be able to address more than one variation. And to my non-ID thinking, if we can get to that point, that would be helpful then to say, geez, what's the next variant? We start all over again, which is what it seems like we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So as we do think about the collaboration between the civilian and military worlds, there's a lot to learn from each other. And can you think of any examples that you might give of things that you've learned in the military, either as a physician, as an officer, as a leader, that really have application in the civilian world? 
Well, there are a lot of inventions that were born from military adventure, sometimes under the stress of war. In this recent war, what we've learned is a lot about damage control surgery, where when you have a complex injury, you do not close the abdomen after your initial surgery. You stop bleeding before you do anything else. Use of tourniquets have come back under the proper observation and control. Controlling temperature under trauma is excruciatingly important to manage coagulopathy. And the use of whole blood compared to how we were taught to manage resuscitative fluids are just examples in the trauma space of things that are transcendental to the uh, civilian space. Why a lot of that is possible is because researchers went into Iraq and Afghanistan and took copious notes and managed voluminous data to then come back and then show in an evidence-based fashion that the use of tourniquets and whole blood and the other examples that I gave are in fact better. Then civilian entities have then used that. That was enough for them to then power it and say, okay, in a civilian emergency medical system, does it work? And that is, is showing to be true as well. So that's an important aspect of how it's worked. And it's such an example of really, it's a paradigm shift, right? You've talked about how there's guardrails around what we do. There's protocols for things. And that's certainly true in medicine, military or civilian, that this is just how it's done. And so to have the ability to have that innovative lens, to tease out all of those different factors and figure out which ones are actually driving outcomes, to then go back in an evidence-based way look for the research, draw the right conclusions, and share that with the world. Such a great example of really innovation happening in that medical military space. Absolutely. You know, seen one way, they're cowboys. Seen another way, it was needed or someone would die. Something had to be done that you had never seen before under the conditions in the, in the United States. And we train to the same standards as everyone. But the thing about the combat casualties is that every casualty, every patient is automatically your brother or sister, automatically, right? It's not just someone in room one, right? Or, or it's, and, and that, you don't ever lose that to the point where if they lose somebody, everyone is crying. And then the young troops then have to be taken by the senior NCO. And they want to cry as well. They say, our job now is to prepare our fellow soldier's body to return to the United States. In that sense, we got to do everything we can. We cannot grow in our knowledge to save lives. We got to be ready on day one. And so as much as the infantrymen are thinking, how can we be as lethal as possible? We're trying to think, how can we be as protective and preventive and caring as possible should someone become unwell, injured, or wounded? You know, I was going to ask you about some of the challenges that we have in public health and how we overcome them. But I think in a way, the last few sentences of what you just said are the answer to that. How is it that we see these people that we live and work beside and eat beside and travel beside as our brothers and sisters? How do we care that they're getting what they need to be healthy and well and successful? How do we actually even learn to mourn for these people that were beside us a moment ago and aren't no longer? There seems to be a lesson for public health in there. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, one can say, hey, this is a great country. You know, my family was poor and I pulled myself up on my bootstraps. Do it yourself. 
you do it. But as I've gotten older, it's not that simple, right? And it's not a matter of if I can help you win, then I lose. Everybody can win, right? It's, it's not as, yeah, it's not zero sum, right? It's, it's we can have a win-win here, yes. Right. So it, it's going to take that sense. I assume Olympians feel this way, but short of Olympians, American soldiers, and when I say soldiers, I mean soldiers, sailors, airmen, marine. When you're in a mess hall overseas in a combat theater and you look to the right, you see Poles and you see Greeks to the left and you see different countries and you think, dang, I'm American. Pretty cool feeling. <laughs> and then you look at everyone's uniform and you no longer say, oh, he's Air Force, he's Navy, whatever. It all starts with U.S., right? And that's a cool feeling. And I've had it where I'm sitting at Chow, then the air raid siren goes off, and all of a sudden you're below the table and you reach up and you pull your plate down and, and you continue your conversation, but you're eating below the table. And those kinds of shared experiences, and this is a non infantry experience, so this is not, is my weapon clean enough tonight because I might need it or my piece of God, I might die tonight. Infantry experience, completely, completely different, horrific. But even for those who are behind, you know, are living through those types of things. That, I hope those feelings never go away. And for those who never had the chance to be put into maybe some, what's the burning platform that allow yourself to think like that, right? Because it takes a level of effort to go that next step. It's not you versus me. We're all together, right? Let's help each other. I think that would be a great win, certainly. Let's move from a very specific thing like a virus that we're trying to mitigate to something that is a little bit more nebulous, mental health. So this is another place where, again, civilian lives, as well as military lives, we're all struggling. There's a stigma. I can only imagine what it's like inside the military, because I know what it's like outside. And yet, talk about readiness of everybody, both inside and outside. What role is HJF playing in mental health and wellness? So we have HJF members as part of multiple centers within the Uniformed Services University, USU. I knew it as USUHS, and they refer to themselves as USU now. But there are many centers there within USU. There are centers within Army research labs, Navy research labs that think about behavioral health, mental health, impacts on suicidality, resiliency agility and responses to the stressors of military service, deployment, and combat. So we're learning quite a bit. As you know, recently we held a leadership forum. It was not a presidential advisory council type of level, but it was an attempt to bring people who had not had an audience up to that point to talk and hear how does the military think about it and compare to how does the civilian area think about it and are there touch points Can people benefit? And our goal is the DOD doesn't have to invent it on their own. They know that. And so if we can passively bring them together, they're just talking with other folks, can that lead to relationship where the ends are greater than the sum of its parts kind of idea, greater synergy? Can that be a win? And that's what we're kind of striving towards. Suicide is the very sad, irreversible final end state of what is a very long line of many catastrophes impacting in the military world. Someone who started off by saying, I want to defend my country and defend my country's honor and be noble and uh, about it. And to see that veer and take uh, such a turn is so devastating to see. But when I watch people see, look at it at the very end, how do we stop the last step? That's not the answer. How do we, 
How we stop at the very front? How do we promote wellness among all Americans so that you don't have to say, I only want to pick you for the military? There's something going on across the board that we've transitioned, something has happened. And so it's going to be bigger than the military can figure out for themselves. It's going to be bigger than any entity can. So we've got to come together and think about this. And it's going to take people committing to the sense of delayed self-gratification. To come back to my mom's story, my mom and dad, when they sent us to school, they didn't buy new clothes, they didn't buy a new car, they didn't paint the house. They were sending us to school. And so I am so grateful that they delayed self-gratification for me so that they could watch us succeed. It's going to take our country something like that. Can we delay some so that everyone can succeed? I'm sorry to get off attention on that, but that's that suicide is critical, not only in the military, but across the board. Absolutely is. And I love the idea of what is it that we can do back at the beginning? Because you're right, it's it's not the end thing. It's it's really all of those things. Social drivers also are such a huge contributor. We know that even the food that we eat contributes to our mental health and people live in food deserts. You know, all those kinds of things that are part of that. And you enter typically the military as a young person, a young adult, and you leave as an older adult, sometimes an old adult, sometimes just an older adult. And that in and of itself is a big transition. And I imagine that there are some health consequences or barriers or things that happen in that transition that is also something important that you have taken a look at. What is that like for people who have been there for years and now have to adjust to a whole different way of life? The hierarchy might still be present, but it's very different. You know, you, you don't have a commissary. Your health care might be available or may not be, depending on where you live, what your benefits are. How is it that you help people be successful, not only as they join the military and look forward to careers, but as they leave? It's funny. It's like we come from all over the country and join the military for whatever reason, right? Some are family tradition, some from scholarships to pay for school. And I tell folks, even running from the law, whatever it is, we all come in and we join this brotherhood and sisterhood that we call the military. And within about a year, we all sound like we're from Oklahoma. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon. And we all eat the same mess hall breakfast and everything. And we lace our boots the same way and we think a certain way. And that is, a however I describe it, whether you have a naval officer speaking to you or an NCO or what have you, it is a reflection of discipline being instilled in an individual because the military requires disciplined thought, disciplined unit, disciplined actions going forward. So those who fight it don't survive very well. But once you realize it is not threatening, it is actually very protecting because you know the rules. And if you happen to operate within the rules, you're good to go. We forget that we're in this bubble with guardrails to our left and right. And the guardrails may be UCMJ, right? We're going to put you in jail or whatever, but you never get close enough. So it's never really a threat per se. But then when we go out, even though, you know, I bet there are a ton of folks in Golden, Colorado, that are in the military, you may not know, right, that are active duty or not. or We're just Americans, right? We're not just, if we weren't in the military, we'd be, you know, policemen, right? It's, we're everybody. But we have that disciplined authority thing going. And when, you, like you said, the, when you look at hierarchy, we can just look at someone's chest. Is that rank higher than mine, right? Is that fish going to eat me or can I eat them, right? 
you know, I tell folks, geez, the last time I listened to a lieutenant colonel, I was a major. You know, kind of, you know <laughs> we have jokes like that. But on the outside, you don't have that because everyone is Jim, Bob, Sue, you know, first name, but you don't know who, who's the boss. And it's kind of scary and unnerving for us as we get close to leaving the train that we call the military. So we talk to each other about all of that. And that's in a good full career. So when you take somebody who leaves after a stint, right, two years, four years, and they came from Nowheresville, USA, they ended up in another Nowheresville, and then they come out by themselves and they are confident, but they can't unsee what they've seen. And they didn't join the military as a mamsy pamsy kind of guy, right? They joined the military because I want to be the tough guy that defends this country. So when they have something that has shattered them, they can't even recognize it, I think. And when they can't recognize it, they don't seek help for it. But like we all do under any human frailty condition, we treat ourselves. We make the pain go away. Unfortunately, what they're left with is things that are illegal or offensive, at least, leads to aberrant behavior, homelessness, despair, hopelessness, suicide, right? Kind of idea. And when they're surrounded by everyone, but they're not their family or folks that can't recognize that, they just see the symptom. They cannot see the underlying disease, if you will, right? They just see the fever. They don't see the infection. Well, no, I'm, I'm just thinking about how this, again, ties back to your mom and the view of compassion, of how she really seemed to see not just what was presented in front of her, but kind of beyond that facade to the person behind and the importance of us doing that during these high stress times, which are transitions. All of our transitions in our lives are high stress. But I think especially as people transition from military to civilian life, and an awareness of that and seeing just a little bit deeper than how people are sometimes presenting. Thank you again for uh, that shout out to my mom. You know, when she was in her 80s, she was so supportive of me. She, I would tell folks, she would say, boy, I really hope you make it someday, <laughs> right? Every day, a general officer, she'd still tell me that. But I love her to death. But you're right. And you and I are fortunate in that we have dealt with human frailty our whole lives. And those who see that only as physical are stuck. But when you see that, that that's everything, the whole person, and it's just a manifestation of that, then you can get past that. I used to be more judgmental. I probably am still very judgmental, but more so, right? The military is very, this is the standard, and you, you either meet it or you don't make it. That kind of bias is what I'm talking about. And I try very hard to say now that my new thing is I love all people, and I can only love people. So I talk to all our newcomers. I talk to soldiers, whatever. I said, so that means I can no longer say, I love ice cream. I can no longer say, I love my dog. But I have to love everyone. And when you love everyone, you may not agree with them, but you still got to love them. And when you love someone, then you maybe listen a little more and you can still, you know, disagree, but you don't hate the guy and you don't hate everything he represents and his whole family and his whole part of the country and his whole belief. You stop stereotyping, characterizing, no more prejudice. That's kind of the approach. So when I see something, a bad action, I do try to think, what caused that? What drove because it? That's right. Yeah, you're probably not evil. So what's going on? But if you've never been inside the military or allowed yourself to imagine yourself in the military and what they have seen or what have you, it's hard to think, how could you just don't do that, right? That's like saying, just manage your blood sugar. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> right? Stop eating, yes. right? Or something like that. But if you can get to that point with that empathy, that'll be helpful, I think. Yes. And I think that there's an and in there, which is that empathy, the recognition, and then connection, right? To resources, to help, to growth, hopefully, if that's what's needed in, in those kinds of situations. As I reflect again on your career, a little bit of the meandering path that it's taken, and yet how successful you've been, I'm sure that people seek you out. I love that people joked you can't hold a job, and yet it's such a a wonderful, again, variety that prepared you for the job that you're in now. If someone comes to you, a, a young person, someone newer in the military, a younger physician, what advice would you give them about finding their joy in their career? No matter where anyone is in their life, my team, uh, I've exercised CEO prerogative to do this because I really mess up all our new employee workshop. But I said, I want 25 minutes to talk to new, every new employee. And it's just granddad talking to the grandkid. It has nothing to do with HGF. So to answer your question, whether it's a young physician or someone right out of college or someone still in high school, I asked him that rhetorical question that was asked of me. Did you know that you can be anything you want to be in this world? And if I don't ask them that question specifically, I say, you should know that this is a great country where you can be anything you want to be. What do you want to be? And then I make it a little more concrete for them. I say, the the way to do this is, where do you want to be in 10 years? Because that's far enough out that you can be audacious, near enough in that there's got to be some reality to it. I says, and this doesn't work with kids, because when you ask a kid, they're going to say, I want to be in the NBA, right? And both five-foot-tall parents look at each other and say, oh, you don't understand genetics yet, right, kind of idea. But when you're an adult, you want to say audacious stuff. And then I say, when you say this, your ears have to hear it through air conduction. That means it cannot stay inside your head because that's magical. You got to come out of your mouth and you got to hear it. So that's number one. But number two, don't tell your buddies because your buddies like crabs in a crab pot. They'll pull you down. Oh, you're snotty nose kid. I remember you'll never do that. I don't know why kid, uh, friends do that. Your parents, of course, they'll do it, but you'll always stuck with, oh, Susie, you'll, you'll do so well, Johnny, whatever. So tell the mirror. Tell the mirror what you want to be in 10 years. Smile smugly, stick in your back pocket and go about your business. And then with that commitment, when you hit hurdles in life, which you will, you will say, but I got to get to where I want to be. You will go around through over those hurdles. If not, you're going to be like a Roomba vacuum cleaner, right? You're going to turn around, go in a different direction and always take the path of least resistance. And I said, here's what I don't want because I love you because I love all humans kind of thing. In 10 years, I don't want you to be a lawn dart and you are right where you are today. So I guarantee you want to be somewhere else. So what is it? Just tell me. I am wired that I like to help. I was just saying, okay, what are we going to do? What's the next thing you have to do to get there? Right? And I don't know how to get there, but it's like mechanic. Okay, well, how does mechanics, you know, how does that work? Right? And I said, no matter what, I guarantee it's going to be some education. You're going to have to read something. Right? So I, I start to instill that constant learning. And then I institute get a mentor. And I talk about that a little bit. Those two or three things are what I tell everybody, whether they're young, mid, senior. And then finally, Deb, if you don't mind, I say, I do this for everyone. Not because tomorrow I'm going to say, you now tell me how to do it. I'll never ask you to do that because I'm too far ahead of you. But I am doing this to thank the person who did it for me. And if you think that we're all hanging on a rope, somebody pulled me along and my job is to pull you along. Now, we just met. 
but I love you. Just promise me this. When you make it big, pull the next guy along, whether they want it or not, type of thing. And I couldn't think of a more fitting example of what you said earlier in our conversation, which is we're all on one team. And to the extent that we really recognize that and do pull each other along as we try to make progress together. It reminds me of another, I think it's a Hawaiian saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I can certainly see how you have gone very far and have taken folks with you and how you've also, though, grabbed that rope and been taken along as well. I always like to ask, is there anything that you wish I would have asked you about that I haven't? Well, you've done a very fine job. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to address your listeners and tell them a little bit about what life might have been like as a military physician and the good people that are in the military, that are contributing to the military, and then what your listeners can do for those around them. I can tell you that no one's looking for a handout. No one's looking for anything other than uh, dignity and respect. But that might require people to imagine that there's something more than what they see. And so if they can overcome that initial justifiable bias of this is wrong, if they can think, why is that? This guy didn't grow up wrong, right? What happened? If it's a scenario like that, or healthcare, or what have you, that that would be greatly appreciated. Guys who have defended our country, seen horrors that they shouldn't have seen when they were our country's oldest children, youngest adults, they will carry that with them for the next 80 years. So this is a commitment that America has to provide for a long time coming. And if people want to learn more about HJF, please do check our website. We are one of many nonprofits, not dissimilar to what you all are doing at Kaiser Permanente, to help those in need. Our focus is on those in the military, again, trying to make the warfighter more agile, more resilient, more survivable. Thank you so much for the time that we spent together. Thank you so much. It's been a really invigorating conversation and new insights into really how we are very similar. We've got more in common than we are different. And I love that we are learning from each other and applying those learnings in our respective worlds. Thank you so much for your time, Joe. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks to my guests for joining me today. And thank you for listening to the Health Fuse podcast with Deb Friesen, MD. I hope you'll share this episode with colleagues, friends, and family members who are interested in diving deeper into meaningful and relevant health and wellness topics. I look forward to the next conversation and will share another episode of Health Fuse with you soon. Take good care. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. The discussion reflects the opinions of the speakers and is not intended to represent Kaiser Permanente policy. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information is at the listener's own risk. Listeners should not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their medical professionals. Mm-hmm.